Psalm number 51. As you are getting your Bible turned to Psalm 51, I'll ask you also to maybe get one of your ribbons or your thumb or whatever you need to do over into 2 Samuel chapter number 12. 2 Samuel chapter number 12. And I'm going to show you the connection here in just a moment. You remember, as we studied the 49th Psalm, one of the striking features of Psalm 49 is that the psalmist is very clear in saying that the wealth of the wealthy, so riches, cannot save someone from Sheol, that is death, the grave, the dark afterlife separated from God, if you will, in the Old Testament. Obviously, you could nuance that a little bit more, but the main teaching is that riches cannot save the wealthy from death and from hell, ultimately. And you're left with a certain amen, a hearty amen. Uh, you know, it's because as we studied, when we looked at Psalm 49 a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago now, uh, you know, you have very wealthy people, very elite, uh, educated people in the world today that believe that one day they're going to be able to download their consciousness and their psyche onto a supercomputer and they're going to be able to live forever in some simulated world. And you remember we discussed a hit piece from the Wall Street Journal of all places where you had a Princeton psychologist and doctor uh, educator uh, writing about what he saw coming for the near future uh, for many people. And it wasn't a description of the latest Matrix sequel, nor was it a uh, reiteration of the old film Tron. Uh, this was what they are wanting to do in real life and in reality. And remember what it is as human beings, they want to escape the inescapable reality of death on their own apart from the saving grace and the shed blood of the God-ordained Redeemer. And Psalm 49 has a word for people that think they're going to escape Sheol and death because of their wealth and education and uh, whatever else that they think they're going to escape Sheol, which is the Old Testament word essentially for the grave, also, it's synonymous with the term hell. Then you come into Psalm 50, and as the people of God saying, hearty amen, Lord, go ahead and judge those wealthy folk, those elites of the world that think that they run things. God then sort of laser beam focuses in on his own people in Psalm 50. And what we find in the 50th Psalm is that God is not interested in just his people bringing the formal ritualistic sacrifices and offerings that he commanded them to under the Old Testament. But twice in Psalm 50, God says that he wants not a sacrifice of bullocks. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Uh, he's not interested in our coming to worship him because we think God needs our worship. Uh, we think we, we're doing God a favor 
God is interested in a heart and a sacrifice and offering of thanksgiving. Well, in the, four, in the 50th Psalm, excuse me, in order to be giving God a sacrifice and offering of thanksgiving, you have to be thankful. And in order to be thankful, you have to be redeemed. And in order to be redeemed, you have to have placed your faith and trust, personal faith, personal trust in the Redeemer who is Christ in the New Covenant and under the Old Covenant. All the offerings and sacrifices were merely pointing to the redemption plan of God. And so then in Psalm 50, you're kind of left, at least I was, uh, as I studied these, with this sort of cliffhanger. Okay, I understand a sacrifice of thanksgiving, offering of thanksgiving from a thankful heart, a heart that's thankful for redemption and the blood that was shed. I get all that. But then the Lord is going to really nail things home for us in Psalm 51 and show us sort of the insider viewpoint of the kind of person whom God is pleased with. And the kind of confession and the kind of heart that God is after. And this is interesting because Psalm 51 is the great psalm that was written to commemorate uh, David's sin and restoration and repentance uh, with God and also with Bathsheba, Uriah, and the child that was taken. So I want to show you the sort of introduction to Psalm 51 there in the margin or maybe just above the first verse you should have a historical setting for the 51st psalm let's read it together the bible said to the choir master a psalm of david when nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into bathsheba so in second samuel second samuel chapter 12 we have this instance recorded for us. I'll ask you to join me in turning. We'll read the first 15 verses of that great chapter. To Samuel 12, 1 through 15. The Bible said that the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the 
sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And for you who did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. So Nathan went into his house. The very sad state of affairs in the life of David is a very, that's an understatement. Here you have the great king of Israel. The Bible calls him the sweet psalmist, a man after God's own heart, committing an atrocious, heinous act against one of his own followers, one of his own mighty men. David had taken the woman Bathsheba in an adulterous and an immoral affair. And then he conspired and premeditated to have her husband executed. And uh, ultimately, Nathan the prophet, under inspiration of God, is going to go and give David this very chilling parable message from God. What we need to understand is that David had not committed just one, but two sins that made him guilty of death under the Old Testament law. So adultery was bad enough, but then he committed murder. He premeditated and he tried to cover it up, tried to hide it, and yet he is found out. My wife and I, we enjoy watching the murder mystery crime shows, forensic files and so forth from time to time. I can only watch so many of them, you know. It was very morbid. But we enjoy watching them. And one of the things that we enjoy the most is at the end of the show, whenever the perpetrator, the uh, criminal, gets caught after he thought or she thought they were going to get away with what they did. There's a certain sense in all of us when we see that happening, when we see the bad guy getting busted, that we say, yes, this was a good day when this happened. Finally, there was justice that had been served. And that is something that is part of us as human beings. We enjoy uh, seeing those who have been done wrong, those who have... Uh, uh, been hung out to dry, we enjoy seeing them vindicated and justice being served. And for all intents and purposes, David would have deserved to have been put to death under the Old Testament law. But something very interesting happens. God forgives him. And David is ultimately going to be restored to a right relationship with God. In Psalm 51, we find one of the greatest testimonies of God's incredible forgiveness found anywhere in God's Word. Psalm 51 has been a source of strength and encouragement for many. You know, it's interesting. One of the things I always like to note is 
how certain passages of Scripture have played a key role in the life of people who have suffered. And uh, there were two people that Psalm 51 was the last thing that they said this side of eternity. They were going to be executed. I think of uh, Lady Jane Grey in uh, uh, England and also Sir Thomas More were both going to be put to death. And their final words, the sort of epitaph, the eulogy that they gave themselves of their own lives was the 51st Psalm. This Psalm has been a source of strength and encouragement for many, many people down through the ages. But have you ever found yourself in a bad predicament because of the sin you have committed? If you have, then Psalm 51 is for you. Perhaps you are there now, or you might know uh, what that terrible feeling is like. Maybe you have someone in your own life that is struggling right now because of something they've done. They need Psalm 51. Let us learn from the man after God's own heart how we can properly confess and be restored back to a right relationship with God after our most grievous sins. In the first nine verses, we find three important points to consider. This is going to be a sort of theme as we move on. There's a crying, there's a confession, and there's a cleansing. There's a crying... There's a confession, there's a cleansing. In verses 1 and 2, Roman numeral number 1, a cry for help in verses 1 and 2. Roman numeral number 2, we have a confession of sin in verses 3 through 6. And number 3, we have a cleansing from sin in verses 7 through 9. I do not know how far I'm going to get through all this stuff. Just be knowing that I already planned this is going to be at least a two-part series. And so your prayers are appreciated. I want to begin with showing you in verses 1 and 2, a cry for help from David, the king of Israel. Notice what he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David begins... After he has been exposed and God brings his sin to the surface for him and all to see, David begins really the only way that sinners can begin. David begins with clinging to God. And he clings to God specifically. What's the thing? What is the prevailing theme that's actually mentioned twice over in the English Standard Version? You can see it in your Bible. He says mercy. Mercy. This is a synonym for the word grace. The word mercy and the word grace in the Old Testament are synonymous with one another. And it's a cry for help. But specifically, David begins with crying out to God in his sinful state. Notice David is genuine. He's transparent. He is intuitive. He is thoughtful. He is passionate. And he is profound in the way that he talks to God. This is a man who is laying it all bare in the 51st Psalm. I'm going to venture out on a limb and say that this is probably one of the greatest Psalms that we have looked at thus far. Just because of how powerful it really is and the strength and encouragement that the people of God can draw from it. 
I want you to notice that there are two key characteristics to David's cry to God for help. So David's going to cry to God for help, and there's two things that characterize this cry. Number one, it's a desperate clinging to God's grace and mercy. And number two, it is a deep awareness of his own sin. There's a desperate clinging to God, and there's a deep awareness of his own sin. Folks, that in and of itself is enough for an altar call this morning. See, when we find ourselves overcome with our own grievous sins, the only thing that we can do is cry out to the God of mercy. That's it. We're going to talk about this this morning. This is the first thing that David does. He evokes God's mercy. The merciful God of the Bible is the root and foundation for all that God does in the life of his people. The basis, the starting point for a right relationship with God is God's mercy. We cannot come to God on the basis of his wisdom. <laughs> it may have been the wisdom of God that formed the redemption plan. We may be awestruck at God's wisdom, but ultimately God's wisdom does not forgive us. We can't come to God on the basis of God's justice because it's God's justice that we deserve. We cannot come to God on the basis of his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. All those things may cause us to be awestruck, but none of those things can bring us into a right relationship with him. None of those things can pardon and forgive us as we need to be. The starting point, the foundation, the basis, the root for a right relationship with God is God's merciful forgiveness of our sins. If we will not, if we cannot get past God forgiving us of our sins, we cannot get to God. David knows this. And the very first thing that David does is he actually three times over, we're going to talk about it in just a moment, David cries out to the God of mercy. Now I want to show you something. Where did David learn of God and his mercy? David must have been a student of the Bible because it's God's own word that would have told David that God was a God of mercy. I want to give you, uh, remind you of a little story in Exodus chapter 33. You remember when the man of God Moses came down off the mountain and found the children of Israel dancing around the golden calf? And Aaron and his friends and the nation of Israel, they said, This be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And they're committing the horrible sins of idolatry and doing all sorts of things they shouldn't have done. And Moses becomes very angry with them. And ultimately, God uh, sort of reiterates God's redemptive purposes for Israel. But then Moses says, Lord, he says, I want to know you better. I want you to teach me how to have a fellowship with you. I want you to teach me something about yourself so that I won't sin against you. And Moses asked God to teach him his way so that he could know God better. Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory. That's a very ambitious thing to say, wasn't it? 
And God was aware of this. And God says, Moses, you don't understand. I can't show you my glory. He said, no man can see my glory and live. It tells you a little something about God. Always be careful with people who say that they've seen God. The Bible says no man, no woman can look on God and live. But he says, Moses, you can't even look at me and live. But he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you, I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock, I'm going to hide you behind my hand, and I'm going to pass by. And God says something to Moses. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. Listen, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The starting point. The goal line. The beginning of a right relationship with God is the God of mercy. God reveals himself in the giving of the law and to the man of God, Moses, as a God of mercy. And that God will show mercy and compassion to whom he will. This also speaks of God's sovereignty. God doesn't choose to just show his mercy and compassion to just anyone. This is a different discussion for a different time. But here you have it that God is a God of infinite mercy, infinite grace. Matter of fact, David says, unfailing love, steadfast love. Now then, I want to give you an application. According to this passage, the most important thing sinners need to know, the very essence of who God is, is that God is a God of grace. God is a God of mercy. There are three key words or phrases which describe God's character and behavior towards sinners. This is going to be a theme, by the way, a theme of threes. This is very interesting. Three is a good number. Three is not a bad number in Scripture. Three represents good things. Three represents unity. And three represents completeness. But uh, David says when God relates to sinners like him that God does that in three ways. God does it firstly according to his mercy, secondly according to his unfailing love, and thirdly according to his compassion. Mercy, unfailing love, and compassion. You know, what is the mercy of God? This is interesting. The mercy of God is the personhood, the character of God. The mercy of God is when God looks at us as sinful creatures. God pities us. I want you to think about this for a moment. When God looks at us in our sin, God pities us. God pities us because he knows we can't not sin. God pities us because no matter how hard we try, we always are going to blow it. Big time. And therefore, God looks at us and God's heart toward us is merciful. That means it's filled with pity. And it's the pity of God for pathetic creatures like us who cannot do anything but sin against God. The mercy of God, the pity of God bestows forgiveness. It bestows redemption. 
And the mercy of God is the basis. When we cry to God in our sin, God pities us. Look at these pathetic people. They can't help what they're doing almost. Secondly, his unfailing love. This is the idea that God is continuously relating to his people in grace and mercy. It's unfailing. It's steadfast. It continues on and on and on. And when this generation of the people of God pass on, and the next generation of people of God are raised up, God will still be relating to them unceasingly according to his unfailing love, his steadfast love. It's continuous over and over and over again. This is the character of God toward us. God pities us. And God bestows forgiveness upon us when we call, on, call out to him because he pities us. And this, this bestowing of mercy and pity and abundant grace and forgiveness, this is a continual thing. This compassion teaches us that God actually feels for us in our infirmities and our weaknesses and our sins. The heart of God is broken. It's pitiful. It's continuous on and on and on when he looks at us. He's filled with compassion. It's our pain in God's heart. Think about that. What is compassion? It's our pain, our destitution in God's heart. One of the things, one of the most striking things about the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry around Matthew chapter 12, he beholds the multitudes. He looks out over them. And he says something very interesting. Matthew actually says about Jesus that he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus looks at them. They have no leader. They have really no leader to lead them in the truth. This is the indictment that Matthew and Christ give against the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. That they weren't leading the people in the truth. They weren't pointing people to God. They were using and abusing the people. Don't ever forget that uh, church is about the leaders serving the people, not the people serving the leaders. It's a big difference. By the way, that's what our government is supposed to be about too. Governmental leaders serving the people, not the people serving the government. The people serving the government is totalitarianism. The people serving the church leaders is uh, dictatorial leadership. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. The Son of Man has come to give his life, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Serving the people, leading them into the truth, pointing them to God. Our natural inclination when our sins find us out, and they will, when our sins find us out, our natural inclination is to run from God. Just like Adam and Eve did. That was a precedent that was set for all humanity from that moment on. Ran from God, sewed fig leaves together, tried to lie about it. And God came looking for them. And God killed the animal. God made the coats of skin and God put them on. A very, very important element of Genesis chapter 3, most people just sort of gloss over that. 
But see, when Adam and Eve realized that what they had done was a big mistake and they had broken the commandment of God, they did not run to God. They ran from him and they tried to sew fig leaves together to cover, cover their own nakedness in the sight of God and man. But that didn't cover their nakedness. What did? The blood of an animal. God killed the animal, the Bible said. God made the coats of skin and God put them on. What does this mean? Well, if you blow it big time and you sin against God and man like David did, remember that God is a God of mercy, steadfast love, and compassion. And let that be the basis of your prayers and the basis of you coming to God seeking confession and forgiveness. David has a deep awareness of his sin. There were three key words which described how God's character relates to sinners. There's also three key words for our sin against God. Let's look at them. Verses 1 and 2. Notice, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. And he said, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, he said, wash me from my iniquity. And then also in verse 2, he said, cleanse me from my sin. So here's your three key words. Three key statements about how God relates to sinners. And then three key statements about how we actually relate to God. We relate to God through transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Think about that. What a contrast. What a contrast between us and God. Somebody says, well, that's only when we do wrong. I don't know. Are you sure about that? Let's look at what the passage says in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Is it just when you do something wrong that you need pardon and forgiveness? That you need the mercy of God, the steadfast love of God, and the compassion of God? Is it just when you blow it big time that you need that? No. How often do you need it? From your mother's womb. Think about it. Is that my word or is that God's word? You know, one of the greatest hindrances to your and our Christian life and our corporate growth as a church and your personal growth in your own private life and devotion is this idea that we're good people. You realize this morning, if you're good people and you really think that, you might not be going to heaven when you die. God's not in the business of saving good people. God's in the business of saving sinners. Transgression. This has to do with overstepping a clearly delineated boundary. So there's a line drawn in the sand. We transgress when we step over that line. In other words, crossing a forbidden boundary in serious rebellion. Let me illustrate this. Julius Caesar, as long as the great general remained on the north of the river Rubicon, he was on peaceful terms with the Roman Senate. But once he crossed the Rubicon, which the Senate had forbidden him to do, he was at war with that legislative body. Caesar did cross, crying, The die is cast! And civil war resulted. That is what we have done with God. We have crossed the boundary of his moral law and are at war with him in consequence. 
It is not merely then that we go against some abstract propriety or break some impersonal law of nature when we are doing wrong, but that we rebel against the rightful sovereign God, says Alexander McLaren. This is serious stuff. Transgression. All it takes for you to transgress God's law is to break one of the commandments one time. You break one of God's commandments one time and you broke them all. You say, well, how is it fair that a temporal finite being like me, if I sin one time, then that sin takes on an eternal character? Well, it's not about you. It's about whom you've sinned against. This is, the, this is the fundamental problem that we have. It really is. We don't view God rightly. God is eternal. God is holy. God is perfect. God is just. God is truth. And we sin against God once we have sinned eternally. So that which is done in time and space has offended the spaceless and timeless one. And therefore, the punishment for our sin, because we have offended an infinite and eternal God, our punishment must be infinite and eternal for one sin. Whenever I have the privilege of teaching the book of Leviticus, one of the things that we always ask, one of the things I ask, and it's around chapters 5, 6, 7 of that great book of Scripture, did it ever occur to you that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ the Lord, had to be slaughtered on the cross because of our little white lies? Think about that. One little white lie, the eternal Son of God had to give His life on the cross for one transgression. Whenever I was in Bible college, I had a rather ambitious gentleman that was a teacher bless his heart this is being recorded so I have to be careful <laughs> but one of the things he said was you have to keep short accounts with God and the idea that he gave was at the end of the day have a notebook by, by your bed and write out all your sins and confess them at nighttime. Well, you know, coming from my background and everything, I figured I didn't have a big enough notebook. <laughs> you know, there's just so many of them. I mean, I was, you know, thinking and, and even little thoughts that were, you know, coming through my mind. I'm like, you know, this is, I'm messed up. I am messed up. How, how messed up am I? How messed up are you? You've been messed up from your mama's womb, the Bible says. In sin and iniquity, we were shaped. When those seeds came together and formed a human life, that human life was formed in sin, under the dominion of sin, in the realm of sin and rebellion against God. It's our existence that is sinful. <laughs> Iniquity, this means perversion or crooked. This is the word that you found there in verse 5. In iniquity did my mother conceive me. And it deals with our sin nature. The word sin, there's a three key words. Remember, transgression, iniquity, and sin. The word sin has the idea, we studied it back in, what was it, Psalm number 32? 
with an archer that pulls back his bow with an arrow in there and he shoots toward the target and the arrow <whistles> falls short of the mark. The bullseye is the law. The arrow and the bow represent our best efforts to try to keep the law. What happens when you pull the bow back and shoot the arrow? It falls short. It misses the target. Matter of fact, I think the word actually has the idea that it doesn't even hit the target. <laughs> it's not that you, you know, not that it was 50 points if you hit the red and 25 if you hit the white and, you know, 15 if you hit the blue and you got the blue. It's that you missed the target altogether. It's buried off in the dirt somewhere. Can't even hardly find the arrow. That's how bad we are. That's what this is saying. As a matter of fact, human beings, you and I both, are, are corrupt both outwardly and inwardly. A confession of sin in verses 3 through 6. Are you ready for a confession? I know I probably need to. <laughs> After all I've seen about myself... I looked at the man in the mirror and I didn't like what I seen. It was Quasimodo staring me back in the face, you know. You know boy, I absolutely am a sinner. Don't deserve anything good from God. Nothing good in me except for Christ the Lord, you know. But let's talk about confession. Now, did you notice the emphasis on threes? You had three key words or phrases that dealt with God's character towards sinners. Then you had three key words or phrases that deal with what we have done to God, transgression, iniquity, and sin. But now you're going to have three strong statements. The first one is, David says in verse 3, For I know my transgressions. In other words, David said, I am aware of my sin. Secondly, he said, I know my transgressions. But then secondly, he said in verse 4, let's look at it. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says, firstly, I am aware of my sin. But then he said, I know I have sinned. I'm not just aware of it, but I know I did it. And then thirdly, he says, I confess my sin. And it's not just, I confess my sin in verse number five. He said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David doesn't just confess his, David does not just confess what he has done. He confesses what he is. This is a very important point, and I hope to nail this home and then let you go off to Sunday school. He said, I'm aware of my sin. This almost seems too simple and trite, doesn't it? But most of our problems begin right here in verse number three. And our problems begin is because we do not recognize nor do we believe ourselves to be sinners. And we don't believe ourselves to be sin sinners because we do not recognize what we do as sinful. Remember, beware of good people, even if it's a good person staring you in the face in the mirror. You are a sinner. Fallen from the grace of God, the image of God has been marred beyond recognition in you and me. We need mercy, steadfast love, and compassion to set us back on the right track. How aware was David of his sin? 
Remember Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He was intrinsically aware of his sin. But secondly, he said, I know I have sinned. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Probably one of the most often misquoted passages in all the Psalms, but definitely in Psalm 51, is this verse here. I've actually heard more on more than one occasion Christians that have got been uh, caught with their hand in the cookie jar say, well, against it's God whom I've sinned against and I only need to confess my sin to God and God alone. But that's not what this is saying. If that's what this was saying, then why would the introduction to this in the 51st Psalm say, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba? I mean, the Psalm begins with a declaration that David had sinned against Bathsheba. And by implication, David sinned against Uriah. And by more implication, he sinned against that little baby that was born. So what does this phrase mean? Against thee and thee alone, or against you and you only have I sinned? Well, there's really only one thing that it can mean. David identifies that the root and foundation of all sin is primarily against God himself. In other words, the reason why I sin against my neighbor and I break the first table of the law or second table of the law is because I have also broken the first table of the law. The first table of the law deals with humanity's relationship with God. The second table of the law deals with humanity's relationship with each other. David sins at least on the surface, appear to be on the second table of the law against his fellow human being. But when David confesses his sin, he confesses that it was against God and God alone. What David is saying is, God, the reason I'm in the predicament that I am in is because I have sinned against you. And because the sin was against God first... The result, the outcome, and the symptom of that sin against God was he sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, uh, the little child that was ultimately going to be taken, and the entire nation of Israel. Do not take that passage out of its proper context and make it say the only person that you've got to confess to is God and God alone because that's not what David's saying. The entire story and the entire narrative and the entire psalm is written to commemorate his repentance to God and his restoration, uh, right relationship being restored with everybody around him. What we need to understand is even when we sin against our neighbor, even when we sin against our neighbor, our neighbor is created in the image of God. Yes, the image of God in them is marred, it's unrecognizable, it's part near destroyed, but God is the creator of my neighbor. And if I sin against my neighbor, I'm actually sinning against God's image in my neighbor. Think about that. See, that helps me to understand Jesus' words, love your enemies. It's not what my enemy does in his sinful nature that I'm to love. I'm never to love that. But it's the fact that my creator ultimately created my neighbor and to love my neighbor actually means to love the creator that made my enemy and my neighbor y'all understand that 
Genesis chapter 9 is your reference. God's very clear about this. What we need to understand is that also in verse 5, look at this, and I'll let you go on this point. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Be very careful with confessions of sin that focus primarily on actions. I do what I do, sin, because I am what I am, sinner. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Nope. Can the leopard change his spots? Nope. I remember some years ago when my wife and I first started raising doggies, and we thought we were going to be, you know, the dog whisperer. And uh, we got on the internet and found some dog trainer and hired him, and he came to our house, you know. And I'm like, you know, I want to train my dogs to not bark. And the trainer looked at me, he's a pretty sharp guy. And he said, Mr. Sharp, you're not going to be able to do that. I said, why not? He said, because dogs bark. I said, oh. He said, you can you know, train them to not bark as much, but he said, you're never going to be able to train them to not bark because that's what dogs do. Sinners sin because they're sinners. God forgives me and God forgave David, not just for what we do, our actions, but for what we are. There's a big difference between God forgiving my actions about something and God forgiving me as a sinful being. How are you going to confess to God, Lord, forgive me for being shapen in iniquity in my mother's womb? <laughs> that's not what that's there for. It's there to tell us that no matter what we do, as long as we are human beings alive on planet earth and we're born of a mother and we're born of a father, which that includes all of us, that no matter what we do, we are shaping our nature is corrupted and twisted and perverted. All of us. And what we need is the mercy the steadfast love and the compassion of God to forgive us and change us. God changes not just what I do. See, it's an emphasis too much often, too very often we emphasize God forgiving us for what we have done. That's true. We need God to forgive us for what we've done. But the root and the core of why we do what we do is because we are fundamentally sinful. Written into the code of our DNA written into the constitution of humanity, is sinfulness. And that's because our original parents, Adam and Eve, willfully chose to disobey the command of God. God said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And that death has passed now upon all men and women, because all are sinners. What we need is what David introduces in verses 7 through 9. We need a cleansing. Let me read this one blurb to you and then we'll be done. What does the phrase blot out mean? Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Remember, this word iniquity deals not what we do, but what we are. Blot out all that I am. 
What does this mean? There are certain ancient Bible manuscripts. They are pieces of papyrus or some other ancient book material that at one time contained a different text, but because this text was no longer needed and the material on which it was written was so expensive, someone rubbed out the old writing, turned the sheet sideways, and wrote new words. This is what David wanted and what we all desperately need. The books of our lives have been written upon with many sins, and these stand as a terrible indictment against us. Unless something is done, they are going to be read out against us at that last day. But God can and will do something. If we ask Him, God will rub out the ancient writing, turn the pages sideways, and write over the newly prepared surface the message of His everlasting compassion through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what blot out means. Isn't that wonderful? God erased the old writing. God turned it in a different direction. And God wrote brand new writing in there. And when He wrote brand new writing in there, He says... The banner over him is love. Isn't that wonderful? But you have to come to God like David did in confession and repentance and remorse. God is merciful. God is steadfast in his love and God is compassionate. And God will blot out your iniquities. He'll blot out what you are. Think about that. Think about him changing what you are. Giving you a new life. That's why we have to be born again. It's, a, it's not turning over a new leaf. No, no, no. It's receiving a brand new life. And that life is created in the image and likeness of God and Christ themselves. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your incredible, infinite, merciful, steadfast love, compassion, and your forgiveness of all of our sin all of our sin, that is what we are, and all of our sins, that's what we do. Help us, Lord, to walk in that and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.